This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is brought to you by our friends at the Law Enforcement Today radio show. Check out the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast, which started as a podcast in 2017. It's a syndicated radio show broadcasting to millions of people every week. Crime and or trauma stories from those that have been there. Hosted by a retired police sergeant. Find the Law Enforcement Today podcast on major podcast platforms or online at letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. The Sauk River Chain of Lakes is an interconnected system of 14 bay-like lakes that are fed and connected by the Sauk River. It's located in central Minnesota, originally home to the Ojibwe, Winnebago, and Dakota people. The Sauk River Valley was settled by German Catholics in the mid-1800s, looking for a place to call home. This community was planted in 1856, and because of the many natural springs in that area, they decided to call it Cold Spring. Cold Spring, Minnesota. This community is known for its friendly and inviting residents, its small town feel, its fun nightlife, and its community that's proud of their history. Craig Kritzik was an officer in Cold Spring. Well, we're just about 15 minutes or so from St. Cloud to the west towards Wilmer. You know, it was a I like to explain it as kind of more of a medium income area. You know, I've worked several other areas throughout the state that have been very low income and high crime rate. That's what was nice about working in Cold Spring is the amount of domestics or domestic calls that I took were pretty minimum compared to what I do now. You know, it was uh, a very good school district. A lot of the residents kind of um, filter in from St. Cloud. You know, they'd go to work in St. Cloud and live in Cold Spring. Um, you know, we still had the couple of the bigger companies in the area too, you know, with Golden Plump and um, Cold Spring Granite and, and the brewery. A lot, of, a lot of people would um, would just travel back and forth from St. Cloud. You know, just it was it was such a nice community in that area. Like I said, everybody knew who everybody was. It was just a fun area to be in. Great place to raise your kids. You know, it was just a it was a nice area to be in. A bedroom community of St. Cloud, which had a population of around sixty six thousand back then. Cold Spring is host to a, a few longtime industries, including granite and beer. Cold Spring is home to the company Cold Spring, the world's largest supplier of industrial granites, and has contributed to several major projects, like the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial and Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C., just to name a few. Cold Spring has just over 4,000 residents, and it's also home to one of Minnesota's largest breweries, Cold Spring Brewing Company, founded in 1874. This brewery is one of the oldest breweries west of the Atlantic, fed by a glacial lake-fed spring right there in the community. Visitors of Cold Spring also enjoy stopping at the Cold Spring Bakery, originally known as the Home Bakery. It was started in 1946 by the Sherman family. You can often smell the bakery on the street well before sunrise, and it's a favorite morning visit to all. The state of Washington becomes the first state in the Union to legalize the possession of cannabis for personal use. It's a really big day uh, in Washington state tomorrow for some people uh, because any adult there is going to be able to smoke marijuana legally tomorrow. Uh, just a little bit, though, like an ounce, which to some people is not a little bit. But you don't need a reason. You don't need glaucoma or trouble sleeping. No medical reason at all. But this might keep you awake. It is still illegal under federal law. President Barack Obama was re-elected president of the United States, defeating Republican challenger Mitt Romney. President Barack Obama won a second term Tuesday after a race that was primarily fought in just a handful of battleground states. You 
The American people reminded us that while our road has been hard, while our journey has been long, we have picked ourselves up. We have fought our way back. And we know in our hearts that for the United States of America, the best is yet to come. The Mars Science Laboratory Missions rover, called Curiosity, successfully landed on Mars. The year was 2012. It was late November in Minnesota. Christmas was just a month away. The forecast was for mostly cloudy skies and temperatures in the 30s. Pretty typical for Minnesota this time of year. Cold Spring is located in Stearns County. It's just about 20 miles southwest of the county seat of St. Cloud, which is Minnesota's 12th largest city with a population of around 66,000 back then. The Stearns County Sheriff's Office provides 911 emergency dispatch services to Cold Spring and other area law enforcement agencies. Jason Bloom, who was promoted to chief a few years later, was an officer in Cold Spring back then. Cold Spring's a town of roughly 4,240, 300 people. Um, it's it's kind of a, it's still got that small town feel, feeling for the TD side. And we also contract with the neighboring community, Richmond, which is roughly fourteen to 1,500 people. So as a department, we cover that 5,500 to 6,000 people total. We have our weekend shift, so we run four on each weekend. Then we have an SRO and the chief. And so you, you get really close-knit with your weekend shift. It doesn't switch very often unless somebody wants to swap a weekend out, but otherwise they're kind of your three or four guys that you work with are kind of who you're always around. One of the senior officers at their police department was 31-year-old Thomas Edward Decker, badge number 6402. Friends and family called him Tommy. He was the guy that would always go the extra mile. He was actually one of the guys that helped train me and he started with our department he had experience at other departments but started with our department roughly a year to two years before i started here and i started in 2006 but so he was a guy that helped train me in um he'd go the extra mile to make sure you understood things uh he was that go-to guy that if you had a question he was the one you'd call because he usually knew the answer off the top of his head um one of those one of those cops that i swear he read statute and case law for fun so (laughs) Tommy was known to have a pretty good sense of humor, too. It, it wasn't abnormal to come in and you would open a drawer looking for a pen or a pencil or something, and you would have 15 to 20 balloon animals stuffed in there that would pop out of there when you open the drawer. Or he got into a, a stint of the green man suit where you're driving down the street and there he'd be standing in his yard waving at you in this green man suit, or you'd be at a, a group event with people and he'd disappear for a little while, and then there's this green man dancing through the trees somewhere. He, he, he did what he could to make sure everybody had fun and, and get to get people to laugh. His goal was to, because uh, our chief always came in at 6, 6.30 in the morning, his goal was when chief just, you know, first got in, only one in the building, come knock on the door on the green man, he would wave at him and take off running and see how he reacted. I, I don't think he ever got that far, but uh, that was one of his goals in life. <laughs> so, Craig actually went to college with Tommy, and he was one of Tommy's best friends. Well, as a friend, I would say, you know, Tom was just a big goofball, constantly joking around saying all kinds of different jokes on a regular basis you know but when it was time to be serious he could be but there wasn't a lot of times that i i got the opportunity to see tom serious uh we worked opposite shifts so you know if he was at home having a beverage or something i would go and swing in there and talk with him and you know we'd sit there and joke around the whole time if i had the day off you know he'd try to swing by and say hi to me or if we took a day off we always tried to get together just so that we could you know hang out and you know stay real close because Cold Spring was a very close-knit department. We all knew each other very well and, and hung out quite a bit or as often as we possibly could. Well, he, he was a jokester, you know. He would be one to, to lighten up everybody's mood, you know. Rosella Decker, Tommy's mom, and her husband John, they raised eight children on a family farm just outside of Cold Spring. Tommy knew after high school he wanted to be a cop, something that his mother Rosella supported from day one. I, I've always told all my kids what, whatever you want to, to do, if you enjoy it, then you're a success. 
he was he had graduated and he went straight from 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 graduation to to Alexandria and that's what he wanted. I want to I want to I want to be a cop. Tommy graduated from Alexandria Technical College in 2002, receiving his associate's degree in law enforcement. He worked for a handful of small agencies in and around the area before joining the Cold Spring Police Department back in 2006. His mother said during the years Tommy worked in Cold Spring, he would often work the night shift and stop by and check on her in the morning as he wrapped up his work day. She said they would often talk every day. He was a very caring person. He had this kind of his certain ability and helping them with their life, you know? That was his, his why he became a cop was to, to, to be out there and to, to help. And, and I think he, he liked the feeling of, of helping, you know? Tommy had been married to Alicia for just over a year. They met like a lot of couples do today, online. We met online on a dating site. And we both lived in the same town, just didn't know it. We would talk and just get to know each other on the phone. And then after we did that for, I think it was a couple of weeks, then we went on our first date. When we had first started talking, he told me that he was a, gosh, I'm trying to think of how he worded it, um, garbage man. And I, when we got to talking, I'm like, so, is that really, I mean, that's what you do? And he had um, drove by my house at the time and turned his lights on. And that's how I knew that he was really a cop. Alicia even embraced the green man suit. It's like a skin tight bodysuit, and he would just put it on for fun. He had it before uh, he and I had even started dating, and I got a kick out of it, and I wanted one, so he got me an orange one. Yeah, and it just became our thing. Like we went out to the farm and the green man and orange man suit. <laughs> it was a Thursday night, November 29th, 2012. Tommy and his partner, Officer Greg Ryder, were both patrolling Cold Spring that evening. Tom was dealing with a runaway juvenile from Sartell. He was at the police department waiting for the aunt to arrive to pick her up. Greg was also there, and he took a call from Stearns County Dispatch requesting that he go check on a suicidal male in an apartment above Winner's Bar. Winner's Sports Bar and Grill. It's located on Main Street at the corner of 2nd Avenue South. It's a, a corner bar in an older building, your typical small-town bar. Locals describe it as a great place to go and hang out with friends, with great food and friendly staff. Kind of like the Cheers bar of Cold Spring. It was 26 days until Christmas. This time of year tends to be a challenging one for people with depression, especially in Minnesota. Temperatures are cold, skies are often cloudy, and it's the holidays, which altogether can make for a very stressful time. Dispatch advised Greg the family of Ryan Larson were the complainants, and they were concerned about text messages and Ryan's behavior, concerned that he was suicidal. They described his having problems dealing with a breakup from his girlfriend that happened several months ago. It was 9 p.m. Greg responded to Winner's Bar and parked in front. He checked both upstairs apartments for the suicidal male, but was unable to locate him. He then drove around and parked in the south parking lot of the bar and called the family to get a little more information about Ryan. After talking with the family, he went back on patrol and ran some traffic. About a half hour later, Greg returned to Winners and he found Ryan Larson's vehicle behind the bar. He found Larson's vehicle. They had a welfare check to do on him. He found it. He got a hold of Tommy on the radio. Tommy was dealing with a juvenile runaway. He said he'd be there in a little while. And then Tommy showed up and pulled up. And this is why I don't like uh, relying on, on in-squad computers because I feel like you need to get on the radio and you need to tell people so that everybody hears it. It, it's just known because you aired it. So Greg had the door cracked open just a little bit, and he opened his uh, his cat or his computer up, and he opened up the chat screen, 
and he sent a message to dispatch saying, hey, we'll be back out of my welfare check. So as he's typing, he heard Tommy get out of the squad, and he thought Tommy was fucking with him because, uh, you know, that's what we did. We always joked around. You know, we were always playing practical jokes on each other. So he he thought that Tommy walked up and hit the side of the dumpster twice. It was like, boom, boom. He said when he looked up, he could see somebody standing there with a handgun pointing right at Greg, which was it's, it's fight or flight. You know, it's either he's going to put it in drive and try to run this guy over, or he's going to put it in reverse, get the hell out of there, or he's going to pull his gun and shoot and do both. You know, he seen the guy with the gun. He wanted to make some distance. He put it in reverse. As he backed out of the parking lot, he looked over and seen Tommy laying there. At that time, he called out that there was shots fired and officer down. 6416, shots fired at the Greenwater's bar. We got an officer down. 104 stations on 1033 traffic for an officer down. 6416, I need a location. Right behind Winner's Bar. Right behind Winner's Bar. Winner's Bar. Copy Winner's Bar. I need units to Winner's Bar for an officer down. The male suspect turned and walked back towards Tommy, and the bus parked by the dumpster. Greg then drove north away from Winner's Bar and told dispatch Sixty-four, sixteen. Shots fired at Greenwater's Bar. We got an officer down. Greg then started to drive around the block to contain the suspect. He turned on his spotlight and he looked around as he waited for backup to arrive. Sixty-four, sixteen. Radio check. Sixteen. I'm ten two. O two was shot at. He circled the block around three times before hearing a Stearns County deputy check out on scene. Greg quickly drove back to the scene where the deputy checked on Tom and realized he was dead. He told Greg to go back to the perimeter. The first responding officers arrived after just a few minutes to find Tom had been shot, and the shooter was nowhere in sight. 6416, I have no idea where the suspect went. Camera. We had to get to the scene, see what they have, and then start directing people in for uh, securing the scene up as fast as we can. If he's still on a loose, we need to shut it down. Station, why don't you start catching uh, the LCAC channel with all these responding off units. I've got state patrol and other units coming in. Let's uh, get some patches up. 10 patches are up. Six station nine and ten six of the bar here. A patch is where dispatch can connect more than one radio channel together, so officers from multiple agencies can listen to and respond. Sixty four sixteen, if you could have a uh, rescue stage somewhere, we're gonna need them. Ten four patient cold spring. About five minutes after the initial call, dispatch was advised it appeared to be a gunshot wound to the head. There were about 30 people inside the bar when the shooting took place. However, over the sound of conversation and the music from the jukebox, nobody inside heard the shotgun blasts. The bar patrons were instructed to walk out with their hands up. They were met with nearly 20 officers outside who had responded from all around Cold Spring, all armed with handguns and assault rifles, not knowing if the shooter was inside or if he had fled. Ryan Larson's information and description were given out to the officers. 6416, is our suspect suicidal male Ryan Larson? 10 10-4, Ryan Larson, six feet. 200 pounds, eyes brown. A perimeter was set up, and it was suggested officers should double up. They should watch each other's backs. 25 minutes after the initial call, paramedics confirmed that Tommy was dead. Craig was off that night. He was working opposite shift of Tommy, but was going to be going to work a day shift that next day, taking over for Tommy, covering for someone going on vacation. I went to bed somewhat early because, you know, again, I was used to working overnights, but I wanted to make sure I was up in time. You know, when I went to bed, I was worried that Tommy was going to take the squad car to his house because we didn't have take-home squads. We shared squads, but, you know, Chris Boucher was off and he had to take, he had the dog at the time, so he was, uh, he had to take home. So I was worried that Tommy was going to take the car home. I was going to have to do a bunch of shuffling to try to get a squad car he uses. So I went to bed and it was exactly um, 11, 13 p.m. My phone rang. 
And so I picked it up and I seen it was Sergeant Boucher. I picked it up and he said, uh, he asked me if I had been drinking at all, and which I found kind of odd, but um, I'm like, nope, I haven't been drinking. Got to work in the morning. All right, I don't have time to explain. I need you to get down to the office now. You know, it did not tell me what happened. I didn't know um, what was going on whatsoever. So I jumped up, told my wife, I said, Amanda, get my stuff together. Uh, she started grabbing some stuff and I turned my uh, radio on. Probably not the greatest idea because then she started to hear what was going on. When I turned the radio on, I could hear Sox Center PD and Melrose PD pulling into Cold Spring, and I could hear that there was a chopper up overhead. And my wife looked at me and made a comment. She was, I got a bad feeling about this. I said, well, somebody had to have been shot. Um, otherwise, there's no way Melrose and Sox Center would be here. In all my career, I don't think I've ever had a department that far away respond to help me out with anything. So I want to say it's at least a 45 minute, uh, 45 miles probably, you know. Yeah, I knew it was something major. Um, never, never would I have ever thought that it was my, one of my partners that, that was shot. You know, so I jumped up, got my gear on, told my, my wife was uh, at, at that time scared, which she should have been, you know, I mean, I get it. So I just told her, I'm like, you know where the guns are at? Keep the door locked. Do not open the door for anybody but me. Um, or unless you know who they are, I said, do not open that door. So I ran out of the house, jumped in my personal car, and I only lived like maybe a quarter mile from the, from the uh, PD. So I uh, got my gear, ran out there, drove rather fast down there. Come pulling up and I seen one of the Stearns County deputies who's on a SWAT team standing in the road and I seen squad cars everywhere. Um, again, still not knowing that within two and a half blocks, Tommy was laying there dead. So I bailed out of the car, seen Robbie, um, Tyson, and he just kind of gave me that uh, a look and I'm like, I didn't quite put it together right away so I didn't know what was going on. So I go up to the PD and I open the door and for some god awful reason we had this huge granite tabletop that was like four inches thick and like eight feet long you know it filled out the whole police department is what it did and I come walking in there and there's people standing in there and I seen Christy um, one of our at the time she was one of the part-timers she was standing there and then I seen um, one of my partners Greg Ryder and he was sitting at the end of the, the granite table and I seen him didn't know what was going on and I seen uh, Greg had some tears in his eyes and I looked at him like Greg are you okay and you know he just lost it you know he got very emotional um, and I'm like where's Tommy and he just put his head down again and at that time Phil Jones came walking out of his office and he goes Greg um, who called you I'm like well my sergeant did I said what the you know what the F is going on and he goes well it's Tommy I said well did he make it and he goes no I said alright where do you need me He's like, Craig, I need you to sit down. I said, Phil, I've been through some very serious stuff before. I can deal with this later. I'm like, where do you need me? Have you guys found this guy? Are you guys looking for him? No, we're still looking for him. I said, okay, where do you guys want me? Where do you need me? He's like, all right, I need somebody like you all out there. He goes, grab one of uh, grab Jamie, one of our part-timers. You guys go help on the perimeter. So um, I grabbed uh, Jamie um, Reverman. We jumped in the car, and we went and parked on Highway 23 at the bridge. While Craig and others worked at the perimeter, the Stearns County Sheriff's Office took the lead, and Cold Spring continued to call people in to help. While I was out there, uh, Sergeant Boucher called me and asked me to try to get a hold of Jason Bloom. Um, he was off for uh, deer hunting purposes, and so I was calling over and over and over again. Jason answered. Um, I told him, I said, hey, uh, we need you in the office right away. I'm like, can you get in here? Um, I don't have time to explain. So he called me on your way in. He goes, okay. So he gets his stuff on. Um, he was basically to County Road 2 and, and Highway 23, and he called me up, and he goes, what's going on? I said, well, it's Tom. He's been shot. And, he, and Jason, you know, had the, you know, emotional response as well. He's like, no, are, you know, are you serious? And I'm like, yep. I said, just go to the office, meet with Phil, and uh, get some things figured out there. So he ran over there. I took the whole week off to go muzzleloader deer hunting, so I was supposed to be off. I was in bed early, and it was actually Craig called me, and he's, you know, I work with him. I figured he was, he, the, the phone rang once, figured uh, he's had him a couple beers, he knows I got to get up early, he's just screwing with me, kind of let it, let it go to voicemail, and he called again a little bit later, and like, all right, better answer it, and all he told me was, hey, you got to come in, Tommy got hurt, so all right, be right in, dropped the phone, got ready, and then... As got in the truck, I was coming into work, 
called him back like hey what the hell is going on and that's when he actually told me that he was killed craig was working the perimeter when stearns county's swat made entry into ryan larson's apartment as i was on that perimeter the swat team starts moving up towards larson's place there and they ended up making entry and i've I've been on some pretty critical incidents before and it always seems like sometimes or a lot of times the plans that are in place always fall through and they went up there they ended up taking them into custody and they get on the radio and they go we need somebody to transport and i looked at jamie reverman and i'm like i'll transport him me then that's me fully thinking that this guy had you know had had murdered my best friend you know and of course you know they're not going to let me do that but um so, but yeah, I ended up going back to the office and then Phil come walking through and he goes, what are you doing here, Craig? And I'm like, Phil, I'm a cop. You know, I'm, I can't sit by and do nothing. You know, I, I understand you're not going to let me go out there and take calls. I understand you're not going to let me, you know, help with the investigation. Um, you know, I'm just too close to it and I get that. But it, we had several other agencies in Cold Spring at that time that were helping take calls. I said, if they need help, I can help them out. They can handle the call. What if they need help from me, I can help. He goes, well, sounds good. Why don't you jump in the car? So I actually drove around with uh, with, with Phil for a little while um, until they got some things figured out and, um, before I finally calmed down and went home and got some sleep. The toughest thing to do in this career is a death notification of a fallen officer, of your friend and your coworker notifying his or her spouse. In a small community like Cold Spring, with a limited number of officers, it can be tough to get anyone freed up from an incident like this that's active and fluid. One of the big fears is when we lose an officer that news and social media will get word to the fallen officer's family before law enforcement can get to them. So it was just me at home, and when it was late, I was sleeping, had to be up for work in the morning, and my phone just kept going off. So I finally got up, answered it, and I don't recall if it was my mom or my cousin at this point, because they both had called me that night, um, and, and it was right away, well, is it true? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And my cousin had said that an officer was shot, that you know, all this is going on Facebook. Um, someone said it was Tommy, but we don't know. Just wondering what you know. Have you heard anything? Um, and my cousin was going to come to my house to be with me, but the roads were blocked. So I, I said, well, I have to go. Um, my next instinct was to call Tommy. But I I told myself that I can't do that because if he is in the middle of a call, he doesn't need his phone ringing. So I didn't. I held on to my phone and I paced back and forth. I looked out the windows. I seen, you know, squad cars down on each side of the block with their lights on, um, blocking the road. Um, You know, and I talked to my mom and she said, have you heard anything? Is it Tommy? I said, I don't know. I need to stay off the phone. so I hung up and then I looked outside because our motion light in our driveway had turned on and I seen Craig um, his wife and Phil Jones was the chief at the time he was with also so I walked to the door I opened it and They're walking in as I'm walking backwards into the house. Um, And it's Craig, one of Tommy's best friends. And Amanda, I mean, we were a good group of friends. We hung out a lot outside of work. And I mean, Craig and Amanda had tears in their eyes. And uh, he looked at me and he said, Tommy. And I said, "Is, is he okay? And that's when he shook his head no with tears in his eyes. And I instantly fell to the ground and cried. I felt nauseous. I didn't, none of it felt real. They also had to notify Tommy's mom and dad. John and I, my husband and I, we had just, we had went to bed about, about that time, about 10, 1030. And uh, <clears throat> my other son was just watching TV yet. And he was sitting in the living room watching TV. 
And uh, I think it was around 1 o'clock when Phil uh, Jones, and uh, the, he was the chief at that time, and um, the chief at uh, St. Joe, they knocked on the window where Billy was watching TV, and uh, uh, Phil showed Billy his badge, and Billy right away went to leave him in. And they come in the house, and then they, they told Billy, go get your mom and dad. And uh, Billy come and said, Mom, here, you gotta, you gotta come, there's somebody to see you, you know. And uh, I was faster at getting uh, my cocoa or whatever on than John was. But um, I came out here in the kitchen and uh, Phil was standing. You know, and it's ironic. My little daughter, who was eight years old, she died in my arms on this same place in the kitchen where Phil stood and told me Tommy was killed. The Deckers had already been through one family tragedy. They lost a young daughter to a rare heart disease. I don't know, you just kind of... Phil right away said Tommy's been shot. And I remember going through my mind was, he'll be okay though, you took him to the hospital and, and he'll be okay, won't he? And Bill just looked at me and he said no. And I think that's when, you know, you just, yeah, you just lose your heart. You lose your everything. I don't, how can you explain that? It's just a, like a huge washcloth wipes out part of your life, you know. I had just talked to Tommy in the, just a few hours before. I had just talked to him on the phone and I'll be over in the morning, Mom. You know? Just, uh... <sighs> well, I was done sleeping for the night. Yeah, yeah, we had, uh... I think I went in the shower and I cried, you know? And then, uh, I got myself dressed and, now uh, a priest came over. And uh, he sat with us for a couple hours, and uh, I, I think it was got to be around five o'clock or, or six in there. Then I started calling my uh, Tommy's brothers and stuff. Yeah, so let them know. Oh, um, um, Phil had said he would block the driveway for for the media if if we wanted it, but I I got thinking. I said no. I said I want. I want the media to know what a good guy Tom was, you know? I just, I wanted them to know how about Tommy, and, and I needed to talk about Tommy. You know, that's one, I, I, even now, all the time, that's, if I talk about Tommy, that, I got him in my heart, you know? When an officer is killed in the line of duty, most agencies will pull everyone from the road to grieve, to prepare for the funeral, to support the fallen officer's family, and to try and process the loss. When cops go to work, they need to have a clear head. They need to always be on their A-game to keep themselves safe, their partners safe, their community safe. All Cold Spring officers were pulled from duty and given time off. The county covered, we had agencies from Metro, St. Cloud, I mean, central Minnesota, they, they kind of set it up that if anybody wanted to come in and, and cover a shift, they could come take calls. There was a list of who all came through at one point in time, but the number of agencies that kind of picked up for us was awesome. So yeah, we all got pulled from the road from that day until a couple days after the funeral. Friday morning, law enforcement officials at a news conference discussed the shooting. BCA Assistant Superintendent Drew Evans identifies Ryan Larson as the subject of the welfare check and confirms Larson was taken into custody and interviewed by deputies at some point after the shooting. The preliminary investigation found that Tommy was ambushed at the scene, according to Evans. When asked if there were any other suspects, Evans told reporters, We don't have any information to believe that at this time, but it's in the early stages of the investigation. 
Saturday afternoon. The Stearns County Sheriff's Office releases a statement saying investigators believe a 20-gauge shotgun was used to kill Tommy. The statement asks Cold Spring residents to search their yards for the weapon. Sunday, Brian Larson tells the St. Cloud Times he did not kill Tommy. During a phone call to the newspaper, Larson said, basically they have no evidence whatsoever that points to my direction. Monday, a judge grants a prosecutor's request to hold Larson in jail for an additional 24 hours. Tuesday, Ryan Larson is released from jail without being charged. Stearns County Attorney Janelle Kendall said she didn't have enough evidence to charge Larson and that the investigation continues. At that time, they had no evidence connecting Ryan Larson with the shooting. This left the agency and the community, frankly, in shock. If Ryan Larson wasn't the shooter, who was? As we said, one of the toughest things for an officer to do is to notify a co-worker's spouse that they've been killed in the line of duty. Now, officers had to notify Alicia that Ryan Larson was being released. Jason and another officer went to her house and broke the news to her. They went from telling her a few days earlier that they had gotten him, they got Tommy's killer, to he wasn't the guy and they're letting him go. Devastating news to a family already overwhelmed with grief. The autopsy of Tommy Decker was conducted on Friday, November 30th at the Ramsey County Medical Examiner's Office. The autopsy indicated that Tommy had been shot twice, once in his left shoulder area and then a second shot in his right cheek area. Dr. Michael McGee determined that both shots were fired from a close distance. Cause of death was determined to be cerebral laceration and destruction due to the gunshot wound to the head. Evidence showed he was shot with a 20-gauge shotgun, not a handgun like was originally thought. Tommy Decker's funeral was held at St. John's Abbey and University Church in Collegeville, 12 miles northeast of Cold Spring, just north of I-94. Thousands of law enforcement officers and mourners from around the state, country, and Canada attended Tommy's funeral, followed by a procession through the communities where he policed. The community coming out, I mean, there's a couple different, there's a candlelight vigil and there's a couple other gatherings at like City Hall um, and just the, the people that, you know, you've probably never seen before, but they're there trying to support, you know, the department, the city and, you know, just everything just because the procession went for, it went from here to St. Joe and then back to the, the big church there and at St. John's and then back to the cemetery, um, just south of town here in St. Nick. It was a super long procession and just the amount of people that were out for that just coming through town and just everybody. I mean, it was crappy weather and everybody was standing out there and holding signs. Residents in downtown Cold Spring also lined the procession route, waiting for Tommy's casket. People from, you know, the neighbors around here and stuff, they would just stand by the road as we drove by, you know. And that's what, yeah, Cold Spring, just as we drove through Cold Spring, was just, just lined with with people. And then they drove through Richmond, and that was lined through with people. And just and even on the, on the roads along, you know, the gravel roads alongside, even people were, yeah, it was just, just um, you know, there's no, I, I have no words to explain the feelings that that gives you. There just isn't. You just, yeah. We may never know everything Tommy has endured, treasured, and done for others, Reverend Cletus Connor said. We can still be grateful that he shared his life with us. 
that we can go on remembering Tommy. The drive back from Collegeville down to Cold Spring, over to Richmond, and then cutting over past Tommy's uh, parents' farm, and then down to the uh, down to the cemetery was absolutely amazing. Um, I remember Lima telling me that at that time that was the biggest funeral they'd ever done, and I remember getting down there. We all get all lined up, and they bring Tommy in. Or Alicia was with uh, with, with Ruben, and they had the case hunt coming. And we all remember that when we came driving through, there was a bunch of horses just on the other side of uh, down by his mom and dad's place. Anyways, the horses were running like it was it was so weird to see how the horses were running and like paying attention to what we were doing. And it just reminded me of Tommy. For some reason, I'm like, no, Tommy's here with us, you know. So then we get there, we all get parked, and it is cold. It's December fifth, and it is freezing cold. Of course, if something like this was going to happen to Tommy, he would make sure it's going to be freezing cold so we all got to sit out there and freeze to support him, you know. So we're all, we're all standing there and the caisson comes through and it was me and Jason Bloom and I can't remember who else is next to me but the caisson comes through and one of the horses took the biggest leak all over the place and I, I, I couldn't help but start laughing. I'm like, there's Tommy right there trying to have fun and enjoy the crown with us, you know. Everybody left to go over to the, the get-together afterwards to go have some sandwiches and whatever else and I just couldn't leave. I couldn't leave Tommy. Um, it just, it, for some reason, I feel like I need to be the last one there. So I'm standing there, and everybody else had walked away, and my dad comes up, and he goes, Craig, it's time to go. I'm like, no, nope, I can't go. He's like, Craig, you got to go. They're going to make you leave. I'm like, there ain't nobody that can make me leave. I said, I'm just telling you right now, I need to be left alone. I'm going to stay here with Tommy, you know. You know, we had thrown patches in with his, with his uh, coffin when he was buried, and I remembered that, one of the last things I ever did with Tommy while we were working is we went to firearms. And in my leather jacket, I still had some ammo in there. Um, so before they closed everything up, I threw some ammo down there for him so he'd go shooting. Um, you know, just just having all kind of, you know, any time, you know, with that, just trying to remember the good things with him that he can go, you know, go and do now that he's, you know, has all the, all the time in the world to go do it, you know. And so everybody walked away. A couple of Stearns County guys stayed with me for as long as they could until they were freezing. They walked away, and then, you know, the guy lowered Tommy down, starts putting everything on, and then I asked him, like, hey, is it all right if I throw throw some dirt down there? Um, and he was, yep, absolutely. So he let me do that. And one of the craziest things, and I haven't told a lot of people this, but I'm, so I'm standing there watching this as this guy is trying to, like, I got a little mad at the guy because he was jumping all over the, um, not the actual casket, but the deal the casket goes into. So he's jumping all over that, and it's kind of pissing me off. You know, that's my buddy. You know, you're jumping all over him. Um, but, like, when they dug the, the hole there, so you got the solid portion of the ground, and then all of a sudden there was more sand underneath. You know, once you got probably past that four-foot mark, it was all sand. And this is really weird to say, but I swear to God, I've seen, like, these black streaks, like, going underneath the coffin. And almost, like, picking, you know, not like not saying that he was picking Tommy up, but, like, almost taking him away you know like he's he's finally ready he's finally ready to go and it was just it kind of creeped me out you know but it was it was like he he was he was happy with how it all ended now that you know he's seen all those people that there to, to support him and celebrate him and now it was time to go you know so Ryan Larson, who was released a few days later, maintained his innocence, and he was never charged in the case. This left law enforcement with more questions than answers. Was this a personal attack against Tommy, or was the target simply the police? Was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? They were left with no suspects and no good leads, and a community shocked by the murder and terrified that the killer was still out there. On December 17th, a team of FBI divers responded from New York to assist. They waded into the freezing water of the Sauk River, less than two blocks from where Tommy was murdered. They also used a robot equipped with a camera to search underwater. They were searching for any evidence related to Tommy's murder, especially the shotgun. 
BCA agents prepared applications and search warrants that would provide cellular tower information, all call data for cell devices utilized in that area near 200 Main Street in the city of Cold Spring. For the time period of November 29th, 2012, when Tommy was killed, from 9.50 p.m. through 11.50 p.m. Central Time. Stearns County investigators and BCA agents would use cell records and interviews with locals to determine who had been seen in the area on the night Tommy was murdered. They would then search out and interview those known to be in the area that night. On December 17th, the BCA announced a $100,000 reward in the case, indicating they were looking for information about a black van with loud exhaust that was seen near the crime scene. A tip came in suggesting a local by the name of Eric Thomas as a possible suspect. Local patrons of Grumpy's Bar in Cold Spring identified Thomas as entering the bar there that night around 10 p.m. After checking vehicle records and interviewing locals, it appeared Thomas had access to a vehicle similar to the one reported leaving the scene the night of Tommy's murder. Thomas was divorced with two kids. His 10-year marriage had ended a couple years before. He was a local. He actually grew up with Craig and Jason in this community. Their investigation of Thomas found he had struggled with alcohol over the years. Friends and family said Thomas had been drinking more heavily lately, and his ex-wife indicated he was becoming more and more unreliable when it came to kid issues and parenting. There was no indication by family that Thomas owned a gun. However, he had access to them from family. Greg and Tommy arrested Thomas actually back in August of 2011 for DWI. He had also had several violations of his conditions of release from this arrest that also put him back in jail. After a few interviews with Thomas, investigators started to poke holes in his story and his alibi. Investigators also discovered a neighbor of Thomas had lent him a 20-gauge Mossberg pump shotgun so he could take his son hunting. The neighbor stored his gun at a cabin near Thomas's girlfriend's property, and Thomas had access to the keys to the cabin. The shotgun was then discovered in the cabin and later identified by forensics as the gun used to kill Tommy. During an interview at Thomas's residence on December 27th, Thomas had initially lied about his alibi for the evening hours of November 29th, during the time frame when Tommy was murdered. Thomas originally told authorities that he had been working that night. Well, they later found out he had been fired that day. These inconsistencies were brought up to Thomas on that date, and Thomas again changed the story to his whereabouts during those evening hours. On December 28th, Thomas traveled with other officers, allegedly to attempt to show them the address where he had been staying during the late hours of November 29th into November 30th. Officers at this time found that the information Thomas was giving to investigators was untruthful. There was no such address. Thomas's phone was eventually searched and all the data was downloaded from the phone. On Wednesday, January 2nd, agents told other investigators and agents that they're going to try and talk to Thomas again and conduct another interview with him. Thomas's family told investigators that he told them that officers were talking to him about that night and that he was cooperating and he denied any involvement. Although he did indicate he knew Tommy and was friends with Larson. Other family members of Thomas said he'd been treated for depression when he was a teenager, but nothing since then. That next morning, at about 10.30 a.m., BCA agents arrived at Thomas's girlfriend's place to talk to him. Agents knocked on the door and found no one inside the residence would respond. They walked over to the pole shed and they opened the door. They found a, a radio playing inside the pole shed, but that nobody was in there. The agents left a short time later and they traveled to Thomas's father's residence in the city. He advised agents he didn't know where his son was and he expected him to be at his girlfriend's place. At around 12.30, agents went back to Sarah's residence and knocked on the door. They got no answer. At this time, they walked over to the pole shed. They attempted to open the door and they found it was locked. They walked up to the house and looked in the garage window. They found Thomas's dark colored van was inside the garage and the garage lights were on. Agents decided they would conduct surveillance on the residence and they'd sit at one of the neighbor's residences just outside of the driveway. At about 2.30 that afternoon, they observed Thomas walking from the pole shed towards the residence. 
As agents began driving down the driveway and approached the residence, Thomas turned, looked at the agents, and began running toward the pole shed. They rolled down the window of their squad and they yelled out to Thomas to stop, that agents simply wanted to speak with him. Thomas looked back at the agents when he entered the pole barn, then he shut the door. Agents continued to honk their horn and yelled to Thomas to come out of the pole barn. Agents on scene advised their situation and they requested further assistance from other agents and Stearns County deputies so they could set up a perimeter around the address. About a half hour later, a Stearns County investigator and uniformed deputies arrived at the scene. Agents had learned earlier that day that Sarah's young son was supposed to be home sick and they became concerned for his welfare. After several attempts to contact Sarah by phone, around 3.30 p.m., deputies knocked on the door again, and a short time later, a juvenile male answered the door. Deputies were then allowed to enter to see if Thomas was located in the residence. They were told that he had not seen Thomas and that he had woke up around 12 o'clock. He didn't believe any other people were inside the house, and deputies searched the house and, again, didn't find any other persons in the residence. Agents then asked the juvenile to try and contact his mother. He was able to reach Sarah by text, and she said she was currently in a meeting and that she could speak with him in about 15 minutes. At about 4.30 p.m., agents made contact with Sarah via the juvenile's cell phone. They advised Sarah that they'd come to the residence to speak with Thomas, and when they got to the property, they observed him running to the pole shed. They told her that Thomas then shut the door behind him after he saw the agents continuing towards the property. They asked Sarah to come home as soon as possible so they could get Thomas to come out and interview him. During this time, deputies and agents had maintained a perimeter around the pole barn. At about 5.45 p.m., deputies advised they saw Thomas looking out of one of the windows. At 6 o'clock, Sarah arrived at the residence and an interview was conducted with her. Agents tried unsuccessfully to call Thomas several times on his cell phone. Then they had Sarah come out and try to talk Thomas out with the PA, telling him he wasn't under arrest, they simply wanted to talk to him. Finally, Sarah gave them the keys to the pole barn, and two Stearns County deputies along with BC agents approached the door and they unlocked it, yelling for Thomas to come out. Agents waited about a minute, and during that time, they pushed open the door further, and they shined a flashlight into the pole barn. It was at this time they observed Thomas hanging from a rope or a strap near the rear portion of the pole barn. Deputies and agents entered the pole barn, and one of the uniformed deputies found that the body was cold to the touch, and a short time later identified him as Eric Joseph Thomas. Thomas's girlfriend, Sarah, was notified, and she consented to them to search the property in the van Thomas had been driving. In the van, agents found an empty box of Remington 20-gauge slugs underneath the seat. On Friday, December 22nd, two days after Thomas hung himself, the BCA and Stearns County Sheriff's Office let the public know that the murder weapon had been recovered from a property which Thomas had access, and that Thomas is a person of interest, but not the presumptive suspect. The case would remain open. This case left many of the officers there frustrated with more questions than answers. The Stearns County Sheriff's Office and the BCA took the lead on Tommy's murder and ran the investigation. Unfortunately, that put them in a position where they couldn't tell any of the Cold Spring officers about the status of the investigation. For these officers, who just lost their partner, their friend, it was extremely challenging. Months went by without any indication there were any leads until the day Thomas hung himself. The unusual circumstances around this case left many questions that still haunt many of these officers. Why was Thomas there? Was he at Larson's? Who was his original target? Some suggested he may have been after his bosses or co-workers from his former employer who had fired him that day. There's no indication that Tommy or Greg, his partner, were Thomas's targets. Was Tommy simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? Craig was understandably devastated by the loss of Tommy, by the loss of his friend, and he eventually had to end his career with Cold Spring and move away. Uh, you know, like I, I had said earlier, Tommy was one of my best friends. Um, you know, anytime he took a day off, he would try to get together with me. We'd have drinks 
if I took a day off, we tried to get together so we can have some drinks and just hang out with the and have a good time. Um, you know, we were all supposed to go um, up to Canada to his in-laws place there. Um, it all fell through. Um, so a group of us went to Duluth instead and Tommy didn't make it. Um, I really wish I would have had more time to actually hang out with Tommy outside of out of work. Um, you know, his his death, you know, seeing his death affect my, my kids and my, my family the way it did um, just tore me up. Uh, you know, there's part of the, at the wake, they had the the um, picture screen up there where the slideshow, you know, and one of the pictures they had up there were my kids wrestling with Tommy in the swimming pool, you know, and um, just to know, and that's kind of family man he was. He was always with his, he loved his kids to death, loved Alicia, um, wanted to be with them all the time. And, you know, and my kids are pretty close in age and always wanted to let our kids hang out and have, have a good time, you know. So, you know, once he passed away, my mid changed the way that I cop. You know, I used to be a pretty, um, you know, kind of, the guys liked having me around because if shit hit the fan, I was pretty good on my feet. Or I am pretty good on my feet and, you know, I'm not afraid to go hands-on and handle the situation. Um, you know, after that changed, uh, my first shift back, uh, the sergeant or, or stopped the car and ended up towing it and he asked me to give these people a ride and they looked right at me in the back of the car and then they said, now I understand why the cop was killed in this town. You guys are all assholes. Um, so I, I stopped my car right there and I said, get out. And, and the guy's like, well, she's pregnant. I'm like, it's like three blocks to Hardy's um, uh, restaurant. I said, you're not going to make comments like that about my partner and about all my partners and I think I'm going to give you a courtesy, right? He said, you guys can start walking. This isn't how we're going to do things, you know. Um, but, you know, cops get, you know, you, you know this. Cops go into funks every once in a while. Or I, I'll even say it too. Like every five, ten years, um, guys go into that slump and they got to work through it. And, you know, I was a cop for ten years at that time. Um, and I went into a really bad slump, you know. Um, I fought through it. I actually, um, once Phil Jones retired, uh, Chris Boucher took over as the chair, or as the uh, chief, and I asked to go to days. Um, I worked days for a year. Um, I was not active. Um, I took my calls. Um, I did. I, I did what I thought was expected of me, but um, I was not being proactive whatsoever. Um, after about a year or so, um, I got called in the office, and they basically told me that I'm getting busted back tonight because they want me to get back to the way I was before Tommy died. You know, I I I, I kind of got in an argument with the boss, and I said, you know, I can't just hit a switch and say I'm okay. You know, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, but I went back to nights. I worked nights, but by that time I was upset with everything, and I decided to go back to you know um, up north. So, you know, I just I wasn't. You know, it was nothing against the guys I worked with or my bosses. I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, um, driving by every day where Tommy was killed, I just couldn't do it anymore. While there are many questions that may never be answered in this case, answers that may have died with Thomas that night, one thing is certain. Tommy Decker made an impact on this community. Tommy was the first officer killed in the line of duty in Cold Spring. Stearns County hadn't had a fallen officer since Officer Brian Kleinfelter was murdered in neighboring St. Joseph in 1996. Tommy left behind a beautiful family, his kids, seven-year-old Jade, five-year-old Devin, eight-year-old Kelly, and six-year-old Justin. Kelly was quoted as saying about her dad, he just liked to protect people. All I can say is, I want him back. Justin, who family said took after Tommy, said he wanted to be a cop just like dad. Mounds of presents surrounded the Decker family Christmas tree that year, but Jade told her mom all she wanted was to have her daddy back. Their dad loved them more than anything else in this world. Those children, his children, are his world. And I'm just grateful that I got to be a part of it for the short time that I was. As a cop, you know, he was, he loved his community. I mean, he grew up in that area, 
he knew just about everybody and he always had a smile on his face no matter what i never never seen him get angry with anybody he absolutely loved that community you know he knew everybody he could go anywhere and talk to anybody you know it was the same thing in college i remember us doing our, our interview class and they went in and talked with Tommy and the instructors even come in and he goes, that guy can talk about anything. You know, they sat there, he'd, he'd build rapport by talking about the Vikings because the guy absolutely loved the Vikings. And you know, he'd build rapport with the instructors and the next thing you know, they, they couldn't help but tell him what he wanted to know. So he was an absolute natural and, you know, born leader. And I, I firmly believe that he would have been the next police chief in Cold Spring if things would have been different. In June of 2014, Minnesota Representative Michelle Bachman addressed the House floor, proposing a bill to rename Tom's hometown post office in Cold Spring as the Tommy Decker Memorial Post Office. From the state of Minnesota, Mrs. Bachman. General Lady from Minnesota is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Mr. Meadows, and also <clears throat> Mr. Welch of Vermont. It is with great pride and also a great deal of emotion that I stand here today as the representative of the citizens of Cold Spring. And in particular, we are here to honor the memory of the fallen, and that is Officer Tommy Decker. On November 29, 2012, Cold Spring, Minnesota police officer Tommy Decker was tragically killed in the line of duty. He is survived by his wife, Alicia, a wonderful woman who loved him dearly and who Tommy dearly loved. His four young children, beautiful children, Kelly, Jade, Justin, and Devin. His parents, John and Rosella, pillars in the community of Cold Spring, who did a wonderful job raising their son and who Tommy's mother spoke to just briefly before he went on call for his final end of watch. For his siblings, his colleagues, and the community who dearly loved Tommy Decker, before his final act of service to the community that he loved, Tommy served the communities of Isle, Watkins, Kimball, and the Cold Spring Richmond Police Department. He received several commendations and letters of appreciation for his exemplary work. How he died is testament to how much Tommy Decker loved his hometown of Cold Spring and the kind of man of character that Tommy Decker was. For a decade, he bravely stood watch. He protected the citizens of central Minnesota with both diligence and a sense of respect. The overwhelming outpouring of love and support, not only from the Cold Spring community, all Minnesotans in the wake of this unspeakable tragedy speaks to the impact that Tommy had on countless lives. While there are no words that could ever properly honor him, renaming his hometown post office in his memory so that his children, his parents, his wife, his siblings, his colleagues can all point to this memorial with pride and say to their friends, my father, our son, my husband, our brother, our citizen, was a hero in our community. He sacrificially gave of his life to our community. And therefore, Mr. Speaker, it is a fitting tribute to a life well lived and to a man greatly missed. As the Holy Scriptures teach us, Mr. Speaker, greater love hath no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. Surely this is what Tommy Decker did for the citizens of Cold Spring. I join the entire Minnesota House delegation in urging our colleagues to support H.R. 43 to rename the post office in Cold Spring, Minnesota in honor of Officer Tommy Decker Memorial Post Office. Though Tommy is no longer with us, his legacy and example of courage and compassion lives on. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And with that, I yield back. If you ever get to visit this quaint little central Minnesota town, you'll also see a stretch of Highway 23 in Stearns County was named for Tommy. When Tommy was a little boy, he got separated from his older sister, and he got lost at the Crossroads Shopping Center in St. Cloud. An officer found him. He consoled him. He bought Tommy an ice cream cone, and he waited with Tommy until his sister and Tommy were reunited. This event is what Tommy often cited as why he always wanted to become a police officer. 
A memorial was dedicated to Tommy on Sunday, November 27th, 2022, 10 years after his murder, and it depicts a little boy with an ice cream cone being aided by a peace officer. Organizers felt it was a fitting tribute not only to Tommy, but to all the men and women who serve in law enforcement in Minnesota. A picture of the memorial is listed with many other case photos and family photos on our website. Tommy Decker is recognized each year in Cold Springs and at the state capitol in Minnesota during police week. His name is also listed on the Law Enforcement Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.